Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. Horror Hill, Season 8, Episode 24. 
The Events at Porath Farm, Part 2 Disclaimer Horror Hill is a horror anthology podcast, bringing you scary stories from all corners of the internet and beyond. As such, certain stories include content that some listeners might find offensive. In particular, tonight's story includes some scenes of violence involving animals. Listener discretion is advised. Good evening, listeners, and welcome back to Horror Hill. I'm your host, Eric Peabody, and tonight's episode is the second half of a two-parter covering the horror classic, The Events at Porath Farm. If you haven't listened to last week's episode yet, I strongly recommend that you do so before continuing with this episode. For those of you that are ready to rock and roll, here's a brief recap of the story so far. Jeremy is an English teacher from New York City. He is also a man living in fear, holed up in a hotel room and writing an affidavit. He tells us about how he had recently rented an outbuilding from Sar and Deborah Porath, a Mennonite couple that owns a farm near Gilead, New Jersey. Jeremy has planned to spend the summer reviewing books for an upcoming course on Gothic literature that he is teaching. One day, while heading to the main house for dinner, Jeremy feels compelled to climb a tree on the property and make a series of bizarre hand gestures, though we can't say why. In the days that follow, strange things have begun to occur. A malformed animal is brought to the house by the Porth's cats, something that looks like a shrew, but with a mouth that is vertical instead of horizontal. A few days later, Jeremy comes across one of the cats, Buada, dead on the property, with a violent wound on its side, seemingly made from within. Later that evening, the same cat returns, wobbly, but seemingly unharmed. Outside of all of this, Jeremy's rooms are infested with spiders, and he feels things watching him from the woods outside as he sleeps at night. Before we continue with the story, I'd like to mention that it includes a number of references to earlier tales of gothic horror. To help with some insight into those tales, and by extension a deeper appreciation of this story, Horror Hill has partnered with another podcast, Strange Studies of Strange Stories, to provide listeners with an in-depth, entertaining, and free set of additional listening materials to help you dig into Porath a bit deeper. I'll talk about that more at the end of tonight's episode. You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today and get instant access. Did I mention they're ad-free? Thank you for your support. And now, from author Ted Klein, I give you the conclusion to 
The Events at Porath Farm June 30 Slept late. Read some Shirley Jackson stories over breakfast, but got so turned off at her view of humanity that I switched to old Alistair Crowley, who at least keeps a sunny disposition. For her, people in the country are callous and vicious. Those in the city are callous and vicious. Husbands are, of course, callous and vicious, and children are little sadists. The only ones with feelings are her put-upon middle-aged heroines, with whom she obviously identifies. Good thing she writes so well, otherwise the stories wouldn't sting so. Inspired by Crowley, walked back to the pool in the woods. Had visions of climbing a tree, swinging on vines, anything to commemorate his exploits. Saw something dead floating in the center of the pool and ran back to the farm. Copperhead? Caterpillar? It had somehow opened up. From far off could hear the echo of Sar's axe and joined him chopping steaks for tomatoes. He told me Boada hadn't come home last night and no sign of her this morning. Good riddance as far as I'm concerned. Helped him chop some steaks while he was busy peeling off bark. That axe can get heavy fast. My arm hurt after three lousy steaks, and Sar had already chopped fifteen or sixteen. Must start exercising, but I'll wait till my arm's less tired. July 2 Unpleasant day. 2 a.m. now and still can't relax. Sar woke me up this morning, stood at my window calling, Jeremy! Jeremy, over and over, very quietly. He had something in his hand which, through the screen, I first took for a farm implement. Then I saw it was a rifle. He said he wanted my help. For what, I asked. A burial. Last night, after he and Deborah had gone to bed, they'd heard the kitchen door open and someone enter the house. They both assumed it was me come to use the bathroom, but then they heard the cats screaming. Sar ran down and switched on the light in time to see Buada on top of Butch, claws in his side, fangs buried in his neck. From the way he described it, sounds almost sexual in reverse. Butch had stopped struggling, and Minnie, the orange kitten, was already dead. The door was partly open and when Boada saw Sar, she ran out. Sar and Deborah hadn't followed her. They'd spent the night praying over the bodies of Minnie and Butch. I thought I'd heard their voices late last night, but that's all I heard, probably because I'd been playing my radio, something I rarely do. You can't hear noises from the woods when it's on. Horaths took deaths the way they'd take the death of a child, Regular little funeral service over by the unused pasture. Hard to say if Sar and Deborah were dressed in mourning, since that's the way they always dress. Must admit, I didn't feel particularly involved. My allergies never permitted me to take much interest in the cats, though I'm fond of Felix. But I tried to act concerned. When Sar asked appropriately, Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician here? Jeremiah 8.22, I nodded gravely. 
read passages out of Deborah's Bible, Sar seemed to know them all by heart, said amen when they did, knelt when they knelt, and tried to comfort Deborah when she cried, asked her if cats could go to heaven, received a tearful, of course, but Sar added that Boada would burn in hell. What concerned me, apparently a lot more than it did either of them, was how the damned thing could get into the house. Sar gave me this stupid, earnest answer. She was always a smart cat. Like an outlaw's mother, still proud of her baby. Yet he and I looked all over the land for her so he could kill her. Barns, tool shed, old stables, garbage dump, etc. He called her and pleaded with her, swore to me she hadn't always been like this. We could hardly check every tree on the farm, unfortunately, and the woods are a perfect hiding place, even for animals far larger than a cat. So, naturally, we found no trace of her. We did try, though. We even walked up the road as far as the ruined homestead. But for all that, we could have stayed much closer to home. We returned for dinner, and I stopped at my room to change clothes. My door was open. Nothing inside was ruined. Everything was in its place, everything as it should be, except the bed. The sheets were in tatters right down to the mattress, and the pillow had been ripped to shreds. Feathers were all over the floor. There were even claw marks on my blanket. At dinner, the Poriths demanded they be allowed to pay for the damage. Nonsense, I said. They have enough to worry about. And Sar suggested I sleep downstairs in their living room. No need for that, I told him. I've got lots more sheets. But he said no, he didn't mean that. He meant for my own protection. He believes the thing is particularly inimical, for some reason, toward me. It seemed so absurd at the time. I mean, nothing but a big fat gray cat. But now, sitting out here, a few feathers still scattered on the floor around my bed, I wish I were back inside the house. I did give in to Sar when he insisted I take his axe with me, but what I'd rather have is simply a room without windows. I don't think I want to go to sleep tonight, which is one reason I'm continuing to write this. Intend to sit up all night on my new bed sheets, my back against the Poreth's pillow, leaning against the wall behind me, the axe beside me on the bed, this journal on my lap. The thing is, I'm rather tired out from all the walking I did today, not used to that much exercise. I'm pathetically aware of every sound. Every few minutes, some snapping of a branch or rustling of leaves makes me jump. Thou art my hope in the day of evil. At least, that's what the man said. July 3 Woke up this morning with the journal and the axe cradled in my arms. What awakened me was the trouble I had breathing nose all clogged, gasping for breath. Down the center of one of my screens, facing the woods, was a huge slash. July 15 Pleasant day, 
St. Swithin's Day, and yet my birthday. Thirty years old, lordy lordy lordy. Today I am a man. First dull thoughts on waking. Damnation. Thirty today. But another voice inside me, smaller but more sensible, spat contemptuously at such an artificial way of charting one's life. Ah, don't give it another thought, it said. You still got plenty of time to fool around. Advice I took to heart. Weather today? Actually, somewhat nasty. And thus, the weather for the next 40 days, since... If rain on St. Swithin's Day, forsooth, no summer drouth. Or something like that. My birthday predicts the weather. It's even mentioned in the glass harmonica. As one must, took a critical self-assessment. First area for improvement, flabby body. Second, less bookish, perhaps? <laughs> Nonsense. I'm satisfied with the progress I've made. And seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. Jeremiah 45.5 So I simply did what I remembered from the RCAF exercise series and got good and winded. Flexed my stringy muscles in the shower, certain I'll be a human dynamo by the end of the summer. Simply a matter of willpower. Was so ambitious I trimmed the ivy around my windows again. It's begun to block the light, and someday I may not be able to get out the door. Read Ruthven Todd's Lost Traveler, merely the narrative of a dream turned to nightmare and illogical as hell. Wish, too, there'd been more than merely a few hints of sex. On the whole, rather unpleasant. That gruesome ending is so inevitable. Took me much of the afternoon. Then came upon an incredible essay by Lafcadio Hearn, something entitled Gaki, detailing the curious Japanese belief that insects are really demons or the ghosts of evil men. Uncomfortably convincing. Dinner late because Deborah, bless her, was baking me a cake. Had time to walk into town and phone parents. Happy birthday, happy birthday. Both voiced first worry. Mustn't I be getting bored out here? Assured them I still had plenty of books and did not grow tired of reading. But it's so secluded out there, Mom said. Don't you get lonely? Ah, she hadn't reckoned on the inner resources of a man of thirty. Was tempted to quote Walden. Why should I feel lonely? Is not our planet in the Milky Way? But refrained. How can I get lonely, I asked when there's still so much to read. Besides, there are the Poreths to talk to. Then the kicker. Dad wanted to know about the cat. Last time I'd spoken to them, it had sounded like a very real danger. Are you still sleeping inside the farmhouse, I hope? No, I told him. Really, I only had to do that for a few days while the thing was prowling around at night. Yes, it had killed some chickens, a hen every night, in fact. But there'd been only four of them, and then it stopped. We haven't heard a sign of it in more than a week. I didn't tell him that it had left the hens uneaten, dead in the nest. No need to upset him further. But what it did to your sheets, he went on. If you'd been sleeping, such savagery. Yes, that was unfortunate, but there's been no trouble since. Honest. 
It was only an animal, after all, just a house cat gone a little wild. It posed the same kind of threat as, I was going to say logically, a wild cat, but for mom, said, a nasty little dog, like Mrs. Miller's bull terrier. Besides, it's probably miles and miles away by now. Or dead. They offered to drive out with packages of food, magazines, a portable TV, but I made it clear I needed nothing. Getting too fat, actually. Still light when I got back. Deborah had finished the cake. Sar brought up some wine from the cellar, and we had a nice little celebration. The two of them being over 30, they were happy to welcome me to the fold. It's nice out here. The wine has relaxed me, and I keep yawning. It was good to talk to mom and dad again. Just as long as I don't dream of the lost traveler, I'll be content. And happier still if I don't dream at all. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. July 30. Well, Boada is dead. This time for sure. We'll bury her tomorrow. Deborah was hurt, just how badly I can't say, but she managed to fight Boada off. Tough woman, though she seems a little shaken, and with good reason. It happened this way. Sar and I were in the tool shed after dinner, building more shelves for the upstairs study. Though the fireflies were out, there was still a little daylight left. Deborah had gone up to bed after doing the dishes. She's been tired a lot lately, falls asleep early every night when they're watching TV. He thinks it may be something in the well water. It had begun to get dark, but we were still working. Sar dropped a box of nails, and while we were picking them up, he thought he heard a scream. Since I hadn't heard anything, he shrugged and was about to start sawing again when, fortunately, he changed his mind and ran off to the house. I followed him as far as the back porch, not sure whether to go upstairs, until I heard him pounding on their bedroom door and calling Deborah's name. As I ran up the stairs, I heard her say, Wait, don't come in. 
I'll unlock the door. Soon. Her voice was extremely hoarse, practically a croaking. We heard her rummaging in the closet, finding her bathrobe, I suppose. And then she opened the door. She looked absolutely white. Her long hair was in tangles and her robe buttoned incorrectly. Around her neck she had wrapped a towel, but we could see patches of blood soaking through it. Sar helped her over to the bed, shouting at me to bring up some bandages from the bathroom. When I returned, Deborah was lying in bed, still pressing the towel to her throat. I asked Sar what had happened. It almost looked as if the woman had tried suicide. He didn't say anything, just pointed to the floor on the other side of the bed. I stepped around for a look. A crumpled gray shape was lying there, half covered by the bedclothes. It was Boada, a wicked-looking wound in her side. On the floor next to her lay one of the Porth's old black umbrellas, the thing Deborah had used to kill her. She told us she'd been asleep when she felt something crawl heavily over her face. It had been like a bad dream. She tried to sit up, and suddenly Boado was at her throat, digging in. Luckily, she'd had the strength to tear the animal off and dash to the closet, where the first weapon at hand was the umbrella. Just as the cat sprang at her again, Deborah said, she'd raised the weapon and lunged. Amazing. How many women, I wonder, would have had such presence of mind? The rest sounds incredible to me, but it's probably the sort of crazy thing that happens in moments like this. Somehow, the cat had impaled itself on the umbrella. Her voice, as she spoke, was barely more than a whisper. Sar had to persuade her to remove the towel from her throat. She kept protesting that she wasn't hurt that badly, that the towel had stopped the bleeding. Sure enough, when Sar finally lifted the cloth from her neck, the wounds proved relatively small, the slash marks already clotting. Thank God that thing didn't really get its teeth in. My guess, only a guess, is that it had been weakened from days of roaming around the woods. It was obviously incapable of feeding itself adequately, as I think was proved by its failure to eat the hens it killed. While Sar dressed Deborah's wounds, I pulled back the bedclothes and took a closer look at the animal's body. The fur was matted and patchy. Odd that an umbrella could make a puncture like that, ringed by flaps of skin, the flesh seeming to push outward. Deborah must have had the extraordinary good luck to have jabbed the animal precisely in its old wound, which had reopened. Naturally, I didn't mention this to Sar. He made dinner for us tonight. Soup, actually, because he thought that was best for Deborah. Her voice sounded so bad he told her not to strain it anymore by talking, at which she nodded and smiled. We both had to help her downstairs, as she was clearly weak from shock. In the morning, Sar will go and get the doctor. He'll have to examine the cat, too, to check for rabies, so we put the body in the freezer to preserve it as well as possible. Afterward, we'll bury it. Deborah seemed okay when I left. Sar was reading through some home medical guides, and she was just lying on the living room couch, gazing at her husband with a look of purest gratitude, not moving, not saying anything, not even blinking. 
I feel quite relieved. God knows how many nights I've lain here thinking every sound I heard was Buada. I'll feel more relieved, of course, when that demon's safely underground. But I think I can say, at the risk of being melodramatic, that the reign of terror is over. Hmm, I'm still a little hungry. I'm used to more than soup for dinner. These daily push-ups burn up energy. I'll probably dream of hamburgers and chocolate layer cakes. July 31 The doctor collected scrapings from Buada's teeth and scolded us for doing a poor job of preserving the body. Said storing it in the freezer was a sensible idea, but that we should have done so sooner, since it was already decomposing. The dampness, I imagine, must act fast on dead flesh. He pronounced Deborah in excellent condition. The marks on her throat are, remarkably, almost healed. But he said her reflexes seemed a little off. Sar invited him to stay for the burial, but he declined, and quite emphatically at that. He's not a member of their order, doesn't live in the area, and apparently doesn't get along too well with the people of Gilead, most of whom mistrust modern science. Not that the old geezer sounded very representative of modern science. When I asked him for some good exercises, he recommended chopping wood and running down deer. Standing under the heavy clouds, Sar looked like a revivalist minister. His sermon was from Jeremiah 22:19. He shall be buried with the burial of an ass. The burial took place far from the graves of Bwada's two victims and closer to the woods. We sang one song, Deborah just mouthing the words, still mustn't strain throat muscles. Sar solemnly asked the Lord to look mercifully upon all his creatures, and I muttered an amen. Then we walked back to the house, Deborah leaning on Sar's arm. She's still somewhat stiff. It was gray the rest of the day, and I sat in my room reading The King in Yellow, or, rather, Chambers' collection of the same name. One look at the real book, according to Chambers, and I might not live to see the morrow, at least through the eyes of a sane man. That single gimmick, masterful, I admit, seems to be his sole inspiration. I was disappointed that dinner was again made by Sar. Deborah was upstairs resting, he said. He sounded concerned, felt there were things wrong with her the doctor had overlooked. We ate our meal in silence, and I came back here immediately after washing the dishes. Feel very drowsy and, for some reason, also rather depressed. It may be the gloomy weather. We are, after all, just animals, more affected by the sun and the seasons than we care to admit. More likely, it was the absence of Deborah tonight. Hope she feels better soon. Note. The freezer still smells of the cat's body. Opened it tonight and got a strong whiff of decay. August 1 Writing this, breaking habit, in early morning. Went to bed last night just after finishing the entry above, but was awakened around two by sounds coming from the woods. Wailing, deeper than before, followed by a low guttural monologue. 
No words, at least that I could distinguish, if toads could talk. For some reason, I fell asleep before the sounds ended, so I don't know what followed. Could very well have been an owl of some kind, and later a large bullfrog. But I quote, without comment, from the Glass Harmonica. July 31. Lamas Eve. Sabbaths likely. Little energy to write tonight, and even less to write about. Come to think of it, I slept most of the day, woke up at 11, later took an afternoon nap. <laughs> Alas, senile at 30. Too tired to shave and haven't had the energy to clean this place either. Thinking about work is easier than doing it. The ivy's beginning to cover the windows again, and the mildew's been climbing steadily up the walls. It's like a dark green band that keeps widening. Soon, it'll reach my books. Speaking of which, opened M.R. James at lunch today, ghost stories of an antiquary, and a silverfish slithered out. Omen? Played a little game with myself this evening. I just had one hell of a shock. While writing the above, I heard a soft tapping, like nervous fingers drumming on a table, and discovered an enormous spider, biggest of the summer, crawling only inches from my ankle. It must have been living behind this desk. When you can hear a spider walk across the floor, you know it's time to keep your socks on. Thank God for insecticide. Oh yeah, that game. The what-if game. I probably play it too often. Vain attempt to enlarge realm of the possible? Heighten my own sensitivity? Or merely work myself into an icy sweat? I pose unpleasant questions for myself and consider the consequences. E.g., what if this glorified chicken coop is sinking into quicksand? Wouldn't be at all surprised. What if the Poriths are tired of me? What if I woke up inside my own coffin? What if I never see New York again? What if some horror stories aren't really fiction? If Mackin sometimes told the truth? If there are white people, malevolent little faces peering out of the moonlight, whispers in the grass, poisonous things in the woods, perfect hate and evil in the world. Enough of this foolishness. Time for bed. August 9. Read some Hawthorne in the morning and, over lunch, reread this week's Hunterdon County Democrat for the dozenth time. Sar and Deborah were working somewhere in the fields, and I felt I ought to get some physical activity myself. But the thought of starting my exercises again after more than a week's laziness just seemed too unpleasant. I took a walk down the road, but only as far as a smashed-up cement culvert half-buried in the woods. I was bored, but Gilead just seemed too far away. I was going to cut the ivy surrounding my windows when I got back, but decided the place looks more artistic covered in vines. Rationalization? Chatted with Poriths about politics, the world situation, a little cosmology, blah, blah, blah. Dinner wasn't very good, probably because I'd been looking forward to it all day. 
The lamb was underdone and the beans were cold. Still, I'm always the gentleman and was almost pleased when Deborah agreed to my offer to do the dishes. I've been doing them a lot lately. I didn't have much interest in reading tonight and would have been up for some television, but Sars recently gotten into one of his religious kicks and began mumbling prayers to himself immediately after dinner. Deborah, more human, wanted to watch the TV news. She seems to have an insatiable curiosity about world events, yet she claims the isolation here appeals to her. Absorbed in his chanting, Sar made me uncomfortable. I didn't like his face. And so, after doing the dishes, I left. I've been listening to the radio for the last hour or so. I recall days when I'd have gotten uptight at having wasted an hour. But out here, I've lost all track of time. Feel adrift. A little disconcerting, but healthy, I'm sure. Shut off the radio a moment ago and now realize my room is filled with crickets. Up close, their sound is hardly pleasant. Cross between a radiator and a tea kettle, very shrill. They'd been sounding off all night, but I'd thought it was interference on the radio. Now I notice them. They're all over the room. A couple of dozen, I should think. Hate to kill them, really. They're one of the few insects I can stand, along with ladybugs and fireflies. But they make such a racket. Wonder how they got in. August 14. Played with Felix all morning, mainly watching him chase insects, climb trees, doze in the sun. A spectator sport. After lunch, went back to my room to look up something in Lovecraft and discovered my books were out of order. Saki, for example, had been filed under S, whereas, whether out of fastidiousness or pedantry, I've always preferred to file him as Monroe. This is definitely one of the poorest's doing. I'm pissed they didn't mention coming in here, but also a little surprised they'd have any interest in this stuff. Arranged them correctly again, then sat down to reread Lovecraft's essay on supernatural horror in literature. It upsets me to see how little I've actually read, how far I still have to go. So many obscure authors, so many books I've never come across, left me feeling depressed and tired, so I took a nap for the rest of the afternoon. Over dinner, vegetable omelette, rather tasteless, Deborah continued to question us on current events. It's getting to be like junior high school with daily newspaper quizzes. Don't know how she got started on this or why the sudden interest, but it obviously annoys the hell out of Sar. Sar used to be a sucker for her little girl pleadings. I remember how he used to carry her upstairs, becoming pathetically tender the moment she'd say, Oh, honey, I'm so tired. But now he just becomes angry. Often, he goes off morose and alone to pray, and the only time he laughs is when he watches television. Tonight, thank God, he was in a mood to forego the prayers, and so, after dinner, we all watched a lot of offensively ignorant programs. I was disturbed to find myself laughing along with the canned laughter, 
but I have to admit the TV helps us get along better together. Came back here after the news. Not very tired, having slept so much of the afternoon, so began to read John Christopher's The Possessors. But good though it was, my mind began to wander to all the books I haven't yet read, and I got so depressed I turned on the radio. Find it takes my mind off things. August 19. Slept long into the morning, then walked down to the brook, scratching groggily. Deborah was kneeling by the water, lost, it seemed, in daydream, and I was embarrassed because I'd come upon her talking to herself. We exchanged a few insincere words, and she went back toward the house. Sat by some rocks, throwing blades of grass into the water. The sun on my head felt almost painful, as if my brain were growing too large for my skull. I turned and looked at the farmhouse. In the distance, it looked like a picture at the other end of a large room, the grass for a carpet, the ceiling the sky. Deborah was stroking a cat, then seemed to grow angry when it struggled from her arms. I could hear the screen door slam as she went into the kitchen, but the sound reached me so long after the visual image that the whole scene struck me as, somehow, fake. I gazed up at the maples behind me, and they seemed trees out of a cheap postcard, the kind in which paint is thinly dabbed over a black and white photo. If you look closely, you can see that the green in the trees is not merely in the leaves, but rather floats as a vapor over leaves, branches, parts of the sky. The trees behind me seemed the productions of a poor painter, the color and shape not quite meshing. Parts of the sky were green, and pieces of the green seemed to float away from my vision. No matter how hard I tried, I couldn't follow them. Far down the stream, I could see something small and kicking, a black beetle, legs in the air, borne swiftly along in the current. Then it was gone. Thumbed through the Bible while I ate my lunch, mostly cookies. By late afternoon, I was playing word games while I lay on the grass near my room. The shrill twitter of the birds, I would say the birds singing in the sun, and inexorably I'd continue with the sun dying in the moonlight, the moonlight falling on the floor, the floor sagging to the cellar, the cellar filling with water, the water seeping into the ground, the ground twisting into smoke, the smoke staining the sky, the sky burning in the sun, the sun dying in the moonlight, the moonlight falling on the floor, melancholy progressions that held my mind like a whirlpool. Sar woke me for dinner. I had dozed off, and my clothes were damp from the grass. As we walked up to the house together, he whispered that, earlier in the day, he'd come upon his wife bending over me, peering into my sleeping face. Her eyes were wide, he said, like Boada's. I said I didn't understand why he was telling me this. Because, he recited in a whisper, gripping my arm, the heart is deceitful above all things 
and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I recognized that. Jeremiah 17.9 Dinner was especially uncomfortable. The two of them sat picking at their food, occasionally raising their eyes to each other like children in a staring contest. I longed for the conversations of our early days, inconsequential though they must have been, and wondered where things had gone wrong. The meal was dry and unappetizing, but the dessert looked delicious. Chocolate mousse made from an old family recipe. Deborah had served it earlier in the summer and knew that both Sar and I loved it. This time, however, she gave none to herself, explaining that she had to watch her weight. Then we'll not eat any! Sar shouted, and with that he snatched my dish from in front of me, grabbed his own, and hurled them both against the wall, where they splattered like mud balls. Deborah was very still. She said nothing, just sat there watching us. Thank heaven she didn't look particularly afraid of this madman, but I was. He may have read my thoughts because, as I got up from my seat, he said, much more gently, in the soft voice that once had been normal to him, Sorry, Jeremy. I know you hate scenes. We'll pray for each other, all right? Are you okay? I asked Deborah with more bravado than I felt. I'm going out now, but I'll stay if you think you'll need me for anything. She stared at me smiled slightly, and shook her head. Trying to convey as much meaning as I could, I nodded toward her husband. She shrugged. Things will work out, she said. I could hear Sar laughing as I shut the door. When I snapped on the light out here, I took off my shirt and stood in front of the little mirror. It had been nearly a week since I'd showered and I'd become used to the smell of my body. My hair had wound itself into greasy brown curls, my beard was at least two weeks old, and my eyes... Well, the eyes that stared back at me looked like those of an old man. The whites were turning yellow like old teeth. I looked at my chest and arms, flabby at thirty and I thought of the frightening alterations in my friend Sar. I knew I'd have to get out of here. Just glanced at my watch. It's now quite late, 2.30. I've been packing my things. August 20. I woke about an hour ago and continued packing. Lots of books to put away, but I'm just about done. It's not even 9 a.m. yet, much earlier than I normally get up, but I guess the thought of leaving here fills me with energy. The first thing I saw on rising was a garden spider whose body was as big as some of the mice the cats have killed. It was sitting on the ivy that grows over my windowsill, fortunately on the other side of the screen. Apparently, it had had good hunting all summer, preying on the insects that live in the leaves. Concluding that nothing so big and fearsome has a right to live, I held the spray can against the screen and doused the creature with poison. It struggled halfway up the screen, then stopped, arched its legs, and dropped backwards into the ivy. 
I planned to walk into town this morning and telephone the office in Flemington where I rented my car. If they can have one ready today, I'll hitch there to pick it up. Otherwise, I'll spend tonight here and pick it up tomorrow. I'll be leaving a little early in the season, but the Poreths already have my month's rent, so they shouldn't be too offended. And anyway, how could I be expected to stick around here with all that nonsense going on, never knowing when my room might be ransacked, having to put up with Sar's insane suspicions and Deborah's moodiness? Before I go into town, though, I really must shave and shower for the good people of Gilead. I've been sitting inside here waiting for some sign the Poreths are up, but as yet, it's almost nine. I've heard nothing. I wouldn't care to barge in on them while they're having breakfast, or worse, just getting up. So I'll just wait here by the window till I see them. Ten o'clock now, and they still haven't come out. Perhaps they're having a talk. I'll give them half an hour more... Then I'm going in. Here, my journal ends. Until today, almost a week later, I have not cared to set down any of the events that followed. But here, in the temporary safety of this hotel room, protected by a heavy brass travel lock I had sent up from the hardware store down the street, watched over by the good people of Flemington, and perhaps by something not good. I can continue my narrative. The first thing I noticed as I approached the house was that the shades were drawn, even in the kitchen. Had they, I wondered, decided to sleep late this morning? Throughout my thirty years, I've come to associate drawn shades with a foul smell. The smell of a sick room, of shame-faced poverty and food gone bad of people lying too long beneath blankets. But I was not ready for the stench of decay that met me when I opened the kitchen door and stepped into the darkness. Something had died in that room, and not recently. At the moment the smell first hit, four little shapes scrambled across the linoleum toward me and out into the daylight. The Porth's cats... By the other wall, a lump of shadow moved. A pale face caught light penetrating the shades. Sar's voice, its habitual softness exaggerated to a whisper. Jeremy, I thought you were still asleep. Can I... No, don't turn on the light. He got to his feet, a black form towering against the window. Fiddling nervously with the kitchen door, the tin doorknob, the rubber bands stored around it, the fringe at the bottom of the drawn window shade, I opened it wider and let in more sunlight. It fell on the dark thing at his feet over which he had been crouching. Deborah, the flesh of her throat torn and wrinkled like the skin of an old apple. Her clothing lay in a heap beside her. She appeared long dead. The eyes were shriveled, sunken into sockets black as a skull's. I think I may have staggered at that moment, because he came toward me. His steady, unblinking gaze looked so sincere, but why was he smiling 
I'll make you understand, he was saying, or something like that. Even now, I feel my face twisting into horror as I try to write of this. It needed to be done. You... She tried to kill me, he went on, silencing all questions. The same thing that possessed Boada possessed her. My hand played behind my back with the bottom of the window shade. But her throat... That happened long ago. Boada did it. I had nothing to do with... That part. Suddenly, his voice rose. Don't you understand? She tried to stab me with a bread knife. He turned, stooped over, and clumsy in the darkness, began feeling about him on the floor. Where is that thing? He was mumbling. I'll show you. As he crossed a beam of sunlight, something gleamed like a silver handle on the back of his shirt. Thinking, perhaps, to help him search, I pulled gently on the window shade, then released it. It snapped upward like a gunshot, flooding the room with light. From deep within the center of his back protruded the dull wooden haft of the bread knife, buried almost completely but for an inch or two of gleaming steel. He must have heard my intake of breath. That sight chills me even today, the grisly absurdity of the thing. He must have heard me, because immediately he stood, his back to me, and reached up behind himself toward the knife, his arms stretching in vain, his fingers curling around nothing. The blade had been planted in a spot he couldn't reach. He turned towards me and shrugged in embarrassment, a child caught in a foolish error. Oh yeah, he said, grinning at his own weakness. I forgot it was there. With an odd jerking movement, he suddenly thrust his face closer, fixing me in a gaze that never wavered, eyes wide as if with candor. It's easy for us to forget things, he explained. And then, still smiling, eyes still staring into mine, he volunteered that last trivial piece of information. That final message whose words released me from inaction and left me free to dash from the room, to sprint in panic down the road to town, pursued by what had once been the farmer, Sar Porath. It serves no purpose here to dwell on my flight down that twisting road, breathing in such deep gasps that I was soon moaning with every breath. How, with my enemy racing behind me, not even winded, his steps never flagging, I veered into the woods. How I finally lost him, perhaps from the inexperience of whatever thing now controlled his body, and was able to make my way back to the road, only to come upon him again as I rounded a bend. His laughter as he followed me, and how it continued long after I had evaded him a second time, and how, after hiding until nightfall in the old cement culvert, I ran the rest of the way in pitch darkness, stumbling in the ruts, torn by vines, nearly blinding myself when I ran into a low branch, until I arrived in Gilead, filthy, exhausted, 
and nearly incoherent. Suffice it to say that my escape was largely a matter of luck, a physical wreck fleeing something oblivious to pain or fatigue. But beyond mere luck, I had been impelled by an almost ecstatic sense of dread produced by his last words to me, that last communication from an alien face smiling inches from my own which I chose to take as his final warning. Sometimes we forget to blink. You can read the rest in the newspapers. The Hunterdon County Democrat covered most of the story, though its man wrote it up as merely another lunatic wife-slaying, the result of loneliness, religious mania, and a mysteriously tainted well. Traces of insecticide were found, among other things, in the water. The Somerset reporter took a different slant, implying that I had been the third member of an erotic triangle and that Sar had murdered his wife in a fit of jealousy. Needless to say, I was by this time past caring about what was written about me. I was too haunted by visions of that lonely, abandoned farmhouse the wails of its hungry cats, and by the sight of Deborah's corpse, discovered by the police, protruding from that hastily dug grave beyond the cornfield. Accompanied by state troopers, I returned to my ivy-covered outbuilding. A bread knife had been plunged deep into its door, splintering the wood on the other side. The blood on it was Sars. My journal had been hidden under my mattress and so was untouched, but I look at them now, piled in cardboard boxes beside my suitcase. My precious books had been hurled about the room, their bindings slashed. My summer is over, and now I sit inside here all day listening to the radio, waiting for the next report. Sar, or his corpse has not been found. One might think the evidence was clear enough to corroborate my story, but I suppose I should have expected the reception it received from the police. They didn't laugh at my theory of possession, not to my face anyway, but they ignored it in obvious embarrassment. Some see a nice young bookworm gone slightly deranged after contact with a murderer. Others believe my story to be the desperate fabrication of an adulterer trying to avoid the blame for Deborah's death. I can understand their reluctance to accept my explanation of the events, for it's one that goes a little beyond the natural, a little beyond the scientific considerations of motive, modus operandi, and fingerprints. But I find it quite unnerving that at least one official, an assistant district attorney, I think, though I'm afraid I'm rather ignorant of these matters, believes I am guilty of murder. There has, of course, been no arrest. Still, I've been given the time-honored admonition against leaving town. The theory proposing my own complicity in the events is, I must admit, rather ingenious, and so carefully worked out that it will surely gain more adherence than my own. This public official is going to try to prove that I killed poor Deborah in a fit of passion, and, 
immediately afterward, disposed of Sar. He points out that their marriage had been an observably happy one until I arrived, a disturbing influence from the city. My motive, he says, was simple lust, unrequited to be sure, aggravated by boredom. The heat, the insects, and, most of all, the oppressive loneliness, all constituted an environment alien to any I'd been accustomed to, and all worked to unhinge my reason. I have no cause for fear, however, because this affidavit will certainly establish my innocence. Surely no one can ignore the evidence of my journal, though I can't imagine someone of implacable hostility maintaining that I wrote it not at the farm, but here in the Union Hotel this very week. What galls me is not the suspicions of a few detectives, but the predicament their suspicions place me in. Quite simply, I cannot run away. I am compelled to remain locked up in this room, potential prey to whatever the thing that was Sarporeth has now become. The thing that was once a cat, and once a woman, and once... What? A large white moth? A serpent? A shrew-like thing with wicked teeth? A police chief? A president? A boy with eyes of blood that sits beneath my window? Lord, who will believe me? It was that night that started it all. I'm convinced of it now. The night I made those strange signs in the tree. The night the crickets missed a beat. I'm not a philosopher, and I can supply no ready explanation for what has been released into the world. I'm only a poor scholar, a bookworm, and I must content myself with mumbling a few phrases that keep running through my mind. Phrases out of books read long ago, when such abstractions meant, at most, a pleasant shudder. I am haunted by scraps from the myth of Pandora, and by a semantic discussion I once read comparing unnatural and supernatural, and something about a tiny rent in the fabric of the universe, just large enough to let something in, something not of nature and hard to kill, something with its own obscure purpose. Ironically, the police may be right. Perhaps it was my visit to Gilead that brought about the deaths. Perhaps I had a hand in letting loose the force that, to date, has snuffed out the lives of four hens, three cats, and at least two people, but will hardly be content to stop there. I've just checked. He hasn't moved from the steps of the courthouse. And even when I look out my window, the rose spectacles never waver. Who knows where the eyes beneath them point? Who knows if they remember to blink? Lord, this heat is sweltering. My shirt is sticking to my skin, and droplets of sweat are rolling down my face and dripping onto this page, making the ink run. My hand is tired from writing. I think it's time to end this affidavit. If, as I now believe possible, 
I inadvertently called down evil from the sky and began the events at Porath Farm. My death will only be fitting. And after my death, many more. We are all, I'm afraid, its destined prey. Please, then, forgive this prophet of doom, old at thirty, his last Jeremiah. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. You've been listening to The Events at Porath Farm by Ted Klein. Ted Klein is a horror writer and editor with a surprisingly sparse bibliography. American horror critic S.T. Joshi has stated, Klein has only two books and a handful of scattered tales to his credit, and yet his achievement towers gigantically over that of his more prolific contemporaries. The Events at Porath Farm is one of his most well-known works, and he later adapted it into a novel titled The Ceremonies. He was also the editor of Twilight Zone magazine from 1981 until 1985 and taught English at New York's John Jay College. A number of Mr. Klein's stories are available in ebook format through Barnes & Noble and the PS Publishing website, including the collection Dark Gods and the novel The Ceremonies. Well, my friends, that closes out both tonight's episode and season eight of Horror Hill. Again, I'd like to thank Mr. Klein for his permission to feature this story on the show. On a personal note, this was truly a bucket list experience for me, and it warms the cold cockles of my dusty heart that I was able to share it with all of you. Also, I'd like to remind you to check out the Strange Studies of Strange Stories podcast. The show used to be called the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast, and the two hosts, Chris Lackey and Chad Pfeiffer, have been involved in a number of horror productions, including the 2005 silent film adaptation of The Call of Cthulhu. They covered the events at Porath Farm across several episodes back in 2018, and while these episodes are usually reserved for their Patreon subscribers, they've been kind enough to offer them for free to Horror Hill listeners. If you've enjoyed this story, I highly recommend listening to Chad and Chris, along with guest Ken Height, as they provide some information that will help you appreciate this story even more. Links to these episodes will be in the show notes here. And while you're checking those out, consider subscribing. Chad and Chris have over 600 episodes spanning over a decade, so you're definitely getting your money's worth. Additionally, I'll be providing them with some narration in return for their kindness, so you can hear more of me over there, if you're not yet sick of my endless prattling. Thank you all for joining me as we finish up this truly chilling tale and round out Season 8 of Horror Hill. I'll be back next week, wiping away the cobwebs and opening the creaking casket lid off of Season 9. Until then, listeners, 
stay spooky. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear a premium, ad-free edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes, visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. Thanks so much for your time and for giving our sponsors a try today. When you support our sponsors, you help support this show, and that means a lot to me. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases, and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. As for me personally, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, username Viking Guitar, and also on Instagram as Viking Guitar Productions. In particular, if you're looking for someone to provide voice work for your own project, or are in need of audio production of any sort, it would be wonderful to chat. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the horror hill for yet another dance with darkness, I bid you good night. Sleep tight, listener, and if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. You've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's episode was hosted by, and its featured tale performed by, yours truly, Eric Peabody. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Nikki McSorley and Eric Peabody. Finalization by Craig Groshek and S.K. Brown. Got a terrifying tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your work considered for future production. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, please subscribe to us to make sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on social media to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and our other programs. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, 
Do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit the thumbs up button to let us know how we're doing and leave us a kind comment. Lastly, don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archives and ad-free downloads of all of your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, you can hear more of my work on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights podcast. However, I will be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. If darkness is what you're after, listener, your search is over. Yet, let it be known, you haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.